you're being a grown-up and so it's like to come home and then come back and live with their parents I think is always a little bit tricky for college students do they have their independence don't they have their independence you know uh, can they join back into the routine of our family you know when we eat or you know those kinds of things and so so I, I find that to be kind of an interesting transition and um, I don't know I don't know what it's going to be like our 14 year old is pretty quiet kid he's all in soccer into soccer so he plays mm-hmm. soccer like five six times a week so he still needs us to be driving him around and doing all those kinds of things in fact he probably he doesn't probably he is the kid who keeps us the busiest of all the kids we've mm-hmm. had he for sure keeps us the most busy just driving him around to all his games and practices training and all the different things he does so yeah yeah he'll also be probably one of the the one who got Probably the most attention, I'm assuming. Is that- yeah, you know what? I, I wish I wish it wasn't true. I, I wish that you I wish that uh you know, as a parent, you wish that you were everything was equal and that your kids felt like it was equal and all of those kinds of things. But mm-hmm. when you have four kids and um uh, and they're spread out, and to be honest with you, my three oldest kids, one of them played a, a little bit of sports here and there. Mm-hmm. But mostly they were in like club teams, like the drama club and things like that at school. And we lived to like across the street from the school. So they, they just mm-hmm. walked, you know, you know, they walked to practice to their rehearsals and different things that they were doing there. Yeah. So we didn't spend near as much time even just in the car, which I think is, to be honest with you, I think driving in the car, when, when you have teenagers driving in the car is probably one of the most important parenting moments and times you get um, with them. Yeah. And maybe that's because they're trapped there. Maybe because <laughs> they need you to drive them uh, wherever it is that they want to go. I'm not sure why that is, but. <laughs> yeah. And I, I actually would say this is probably true of, this is true of my family. I mean, maybe it's not true of every family, but it also forces me. Like I, you know, hopefully we'll get into talking to a little bit about, you know, more self-awareness around us as parents, you know, um, Mm -hmm. not just how do we parent our kids, Mm -hmm. but who are we as parents? And, and I would say, you know, if I'm going to be completely honest, it's good for me to not be on my phone Yeah, Yeah. while I drive, you you know, obviously while I drive, it's, it's good to not be on my phone, but (laughs) I think that my kids get even more of my undivided attention when we're actively trying to do something, whether that's, you know, driving somewhere or, or going for a walk or doing some of those mm-hmm. kinds of things. I think that's really when I'm able to be most attentive to kind of what my kid, what's going on in my kid's life or, or, or what they're up to. That or the hot tub. Yeah, I'm lucky enough. I, <laughs> I do a little bit of hot tub work, you know, so we have a refurbished hot tub here that we got fixed up. That's been a valuable, valuable time over the years with my kids. You know, no, I, I, I fully understand the struggle there. My children, well, my son, the one who I can interact with the most, but even actually my uh, with, with my newborn, I'm finding myself dealing with the same question of uh, when is it that I get that one-on-one undivided attention time with kiddo, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm very lucky because with school, the podcast, the business behind it and everything. My son is super duper understanding, but that's just because of all the communications we've had around this. So I have to explain to him, why is it that daddy's pulled in so many directions? What is he trying to achieve? What's the end goal and whatnot? But I had to have those conversations with him. Mm-hmm. And where do we find those little moments? Okay, back then we used to find them. I mean, okay, if we're biking around the city or wherever, we're not really talking. 
Yeah. We may pause, we're enjoying ourselves, but we're not really talking. If we're doing activities, you know, we're in the heat of the action. Dinner time has been one of the most important time that we try to maintain, eat that final meal, the last meal together. And then other than that, yeah, actually driving in the vehicle. And the trick was to not allow the tablet in the vehicle. <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah. No, none of that. Maybe the book. Maybe uh, we'll bring books in the vehicle. But since he broke his tablet, can't be in the vehicle no more. That's actually a place for us to have, you know, that little bit of interaction because it's not there. You got to look for it. And then with my baby, what I realize I do, and I only realize I'm, I'm being more mindful of this. But the last book here that I'm reading in preparation for an upcoming show made me realize how much there is going on with young children and how. We parents need to understand that because it's easy for me to put on my one-hour news podcast and I'm washing dishes or do it also whenever I'm rocking baby. But then sometimes we could be interacting and I'm losing all moments there. So I think it happens or we have that qu those questions in our head at every single stage. And from what I'm hearing with you, 14, it's still there. And probably with your older kids when they're coming back in summer too. Yeah, I think I think it's true like that uh, we have these periods of time and I would say that you know our kids are getting busier too. You know, like everything is yeah. busier. You know, obviously I've been a parent for 26 years, something like that and um I'm 50, just about 50 years old here this spring and for sure the amount of things that can occupy our time and our children's time everywhere that we go and that's that's our phones for sure can become overwhelming and we really do need to take advantage of the moments that we do get and and have them be as much intentional as possible. And unfortunately that means being a little bit creative around okay mm -hmm. we're going to have some intentional time even when we drive to go to somewhere or when we're going to practice or we're doing something. And I think that when we teach our kids to not be able to set their phone aside even for a 20 minute car ride, I wonder sometimes you know what are we setting them up for in the future? You know, when when do our children even us, you know, when do we stand in line even and wait mm -hmm. for something without pulling out our phones? You know, even I was at yeah. the grocery store the other day and, you know, there's like um, two grocery carts deep, you know, uh, you know, a couple in front of me. And I don't even know when I pulled my phone out and started looking at it, <laughs> you, you know, but, but. It's like Billy the Kid. <laughs> yeah, it, right. It's just so fast. You don't even realize you're doing it. And, and I, I think that that can be one of those kind of intentional things that we're starting to teach our kids and starting to model for our kids, you know. And I think that's mm -hmm. that's been one of the keys even as I, you know, get ready to write this, you know, writing this little workshop thing that I'm doing. And and it's so funny because it's like, you know, the tool, hopefully we'll get into talking a little bit about this tool, the Enneagram. But Please, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, you can teach the tool. And you can teach, we can teach our kids all kinds of skills and different things. But I, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that it sinks in until they start to see us model it. Mm -hmm. And I think mm -hmm. that's one of the keys for me is, you know, being able to take the things that I have learned and have been learning and then put them into some form of practice so they're actually modeled. And I think that's the key, you know, in, in my coaching business, I'll have different clients, you know, some businesses even that will come in and, and I'll tell them, I, I can teach you how this tool works. I can even teach you about each of the nine personality types. I can even teach you that this tool is made for growth and self-awareness. But if you don't start to practice it, if you don't start to, yeah. to model some of the practices, if you don't start to integrate some of the things that you're learning into 
into how you maybe process something or how you do something. You don't grow. You don't experience transformation. You, you, you just gather some more knowledge that you retain. Mm-hmm. And I, well, I, that raises it. Yeah, go ahead. Idea. No. It, it made me think of, okay, like parenting as a model behavior. You're learning as you go. You're learning as you grow as well. But also, there's definitely a gap in between when you can start practicing parenthood and actually just learning from it, from everything that you've been seeing throughout your life. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I would say that it was not until I was maybe 23 that I started really reprocessing what my mom was teaching me. And mainly because I was going through experiences that were forcing me to turn back around and look at the reality of things and juxtapose it to what I've been taught, to what I've seen. And I'm assuming for you too, there's probably like a certain point where you started really rethinking about what you've been taught growing up, what you've seen, what you've modeled. And that's like on your way to become a parent. You know, you know the timelines better than I do. What would you say about that gap there? And also for yourself, like the implementation of what you've seen when you're growing up versus when you became a parent and started executing? Yeah, I think for sure. And, and I, I would actually even try to be as gentle as possible, even when I, when I say, it, say it this way. I think that we learn, you know, in particularly, I think we're always in a constant state of learning with our kids as mm-hmm. they go through the different stages of their growth and development. And so I, I think there, there's something to be said even about saying, okay, well, I've been a, you know, if you look at it from my perspective, I, I've been a, a parent for 26 years. So, so I'm actually just in my early 20s. <laughs> When I think about me and my parenting style and what I'm going to be parent, how I'm going to parent. And, and let me tell you, Len, like it doesn't end. You don't stop being a parent when your kids are 18, you know? And, and so being able to kind of recognize and be good to yourself, you know, showing compassion towards yourself to say, all right, so I have a four-year-old. Well, that's the level of parenting that I'm able to do right. And I, I do think that that doesn't give us excuses to be childish in our parenting. But it, it does give us a way for us to kind of be good to ourselves in terms of like, all right, I haven't been at this forever. And for sure, you know, when I when I look at I'm a I'm a product actually of four children in my I have three sisters in my family. I'm the I'm the second to the youngest. And for sure, I definitely would say my parents shifted their parenting styles. They shifted their posture. I think they were far more gentle with me. And my younger sister than they were with my older sisters. There wasn't a huge gap in that. But I do think that you settle into being a little bit more at peace as a parent as your kids get a little bit older. And you start to realize that a behavior or even something they that they're really obsessed with right now isn't isn't going to be forever. Mm. It's not going to be yeah. forever. And their perspectives and the way that they grow and, and shift is going to change. And so I I think that that's one of the things I observed my parents do was that I was able to see, oh, they're, they're a little bit more strict with my older, my oldest sister, for sure. And I think there was a little bit more fear parenting going on, although I think, you know, there was fear parenting happening. Maybe still is, you know, at some level. And I, I don't think any parent can say, well, I parent without fear. Yeah, yeah. We, we all have a level of fear that keeps us attentive to kind of what's happening uh, not just in our own mm-hmm. lives, but in the lives of our kids. And, and then actually a story came to mind when you were when you were saying this. It's like, I remember I was in junior high 
And, you know, I was a rebellious kid. I was probably saying or doing something relatively critical. And I remember my mom saying, you know, someday, Evan, you're going to become an adult. And there's going to come a point when you're going to get to choose. What am I going to take from what my parents have taught me, instilled in me? What am I going to take and what am I going to implement into my life? And what am I going to leave? What are you going to leave? And, and she's like, I hope that you make conscious choices to take the good things and leave the things that don't work for you. And that you become a healthier human and a healthier parent than I was at the time than I am, is what she was saying. Mm-hmm. And it, it's so funny. And I, I, I actually do know the snarky response that I gave back to her, which was kind of an interest. It was an interesting thing because I, I almost immediately was like, oh, well, what are you going to take from grandpa? You know, I, I had a lot of respect oh. for my grandpa, <laughs> which was her dad. And she said, we, had a, we, had, we laugh about it now. She said, I tell you what I'm not going to take. I'm not going to take his obsessive need to be 30 minutes early for everything he goes to. <laughs> and my mom, is, in my opinion, is chronically late. Definitely at the time she was chronically late. And it was so quick because I remember saying, it's so interesting you'd say that because your like chronic lateness is the thing I'm definitely not going to be taking. And, and it's true. Like I, <laughs> I don't like being late and I, I work really hard at <laughs> being on time for everything. And, um, uh, it is kind of one of those kind of things. That's just a small, funny example. Yeah. But I, I was blessed to have parents that were, I had really great parents who, who did their very best to parent and lead me in kind of a way that worked best for me. Mm-hmm. And I know that it didn't always work best for them, that particular mm-hmm. style. But they, they knew me and they knew what I needed. And they were able to kind of respond uh, well to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really love that advice of like, take, what what is right for you what is good for you yeah because it's so much more clear than take the good leave the bad yeah because it's very subjective mm-hmm. to say it that way yeah you know? um from like i try to think like with discipline the way we discipline our children would that be one of the big things that we take or is it the small things like what takes precedence like for example the brain is really good at noticing, remembering, being alerted by negative things versus positive things. Mm-hmm. I already said that, but like, yeah, what about like the discipline elements in terms of, yeah, yeah, like how, how, how did that carry over? Because for me, there, there had to be a, like the way we were brought up and disciplined did not make sense at all for this culture and this society. It had to be something that had to be completely revisited and changed. And to be frank, like the way we were brought up back in Africa when it came to discipline particularly was the whip. Whether you're at home, at school, you know, if you miss homework, if you miss assignment, if you're late, teacher probably whip you. When your parents got notice of the bad grade, they probably whipped you. Hopefully grandpa didn't hear or uncle didn't hear that you did something really bad because that might be a third one in line. But at the same time, it was happening to everybody. It was happening like, so it was never... You know, you're not going to feel singled out, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's happening to all of us. <laughs> it might be funny even. But again, like that's like the society there and whatever were the preconceived notions as to why that was happening. Once we got here to Canada, we had to pretty much like that couldn't be anymore, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's not in this culture. It's not in this way. It's against the law in many ways and it's seen as abuse. 
completely different, I'm assuming for maybe how, well, you're probably of a different generation. I don't know if they whipped you guys when you were young as well. But yeah, um, you, you know what? Yeah, no, like, I, how did it carry over? I um, well, I grew up in a culture, a predominantly rural culture, with some relatively conservative parents, and for sure, like I was, I was a kid who got spanked. Mm-hmm. But I, but I, I wouldn't say that for me it ever, it ever moved past anything that I would ever have considered to be any form of abuse, like we would call it now. Mm-hmm. And in your your case, even as you're describing it, right, like you, to talk about getting whipped for anything is terrifying it's it's, it's a scary thought mm-hmm. and I, I do recognize that that is a part of a lot of cultures kind of how they they discipline encourage even direct their children towards what they want them to do and how they want them to behave for me um when i was growing up it was far more of you know when i think about what was the criteria for getting a spank <laughs> it most definitely was based around respect and i i think that whenever whenever i lost respect or demonstrate a level of respect that wasn't uh, appropriate towards my parents or other adults. And I think there was retribution that took place. And so I think that that was one of the things that definitely was instilled in me really, really early on was that to respect others is not only a requirement of a healthy culture, mm-hmm. but it is um, a requirement of being a part of my family. But this is one of the criteria <laughs> to being a part of the DeWald families is that we would do our best to always show a, a level of respect for those around us. Can we teach respect without like a physical form of discipline? Yes, we absolutely can. Mm-hmm. Did I turn into a, a parent that spanked? To my recollection, not really. I, I, I'm sure that I spanked my kids a few times, but I think it was something that bothered me more than it bothered them. And so I, I think I, I, I think I shifted my parenting style pretty fast, pretty early on when they were they were little. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. in other words, I guess I, I wouldn't say I ever got traumatized by my parents' form of discipline, but I definitely know. And and in my, all my years of you know, I, I worked with with youth and families for years and years, and I definitely know that there are a lot of people walking around with maybe not the physical scars of abuse, but but the emotional and mental scars of abuse that came from the hands and lips of their parents. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I think I always try to encourage parents to be growing individuals because I think that's probably the key to, to being a good parent. Mm-hmm. So, Especially yeah. because if you had gone through that and it spills over in the realm of physical abuse, and I'm drawing a particular distinction here because for me growing up, it didn't be, it wasn't so much physical abuse and not to say that mm-hmm. at certain times it wasn't, but the way I came to grow and take it for me, it wasn't so much physical abuse, but I can't say that for everybody that I grew up with who grew up under such a system of raising the children. Something can be said for children for who that borders in the realm of physical abuse. If they're repeating that for their children, to their children, they're just reliving their own trauma in a sense. Mm-hmm. And they've never really been over it. They've never really processed it or thought about it because now it's being perpetrated again. And maybe this ties into the element of knowledge of self, again, that we discussed last time as parents and really rebuilding our identity. And that's kind of like what I'm building up to here is like, how do we build our parent identity, as you stated mm-hmm. yeah. there, right, earlier? Yeah, and you know what? I, I definitely want to do that. That's that's really what I want to talk about. Something else just came to mind while you were talking to, and I, I, 
you know, we moved towards discipline pretty quickly mm-hmm. when we were talking about, you know, because I think it's one of the most predominant things as a parent. But I also wonder about like, what are our forms of motivation? Like, how do we motivate our kids, you know, mm-hmm. to be who we hope that they will be? You know, what does that look like? And what are your particular techniques or, and, and maybe even for us as parents to be able to think and stop and go, but what's, and what motivated me as a kid? You know, what was that? Was it fear, you know, of some form of discipline or, or was it, was it a form of love? Was it a form of appreciation or, you know, praise, encouragement or all those kinds of things? I, I think that one of the words that comes to mind most quickly for me is, you know, for us as parents to be thinking about first and foremost, what is your reaction? Mm-hmm. We, we all react to the things that come at us. That's true of our parenting, but it's true of our, our relationships that we have. It's true at work. And being able to kind of pay real close attention to our posture, in particular when we get stressed out, demonstrates a lot about our reaction. Mm-hmm. Right? And I mm-hmm. think that if we, can, if we can narrow down and pay more attention to our reaction, right? Is it my instinct to encourage or my instinct to correct? And how can those two things kind of go hand in hand? You know, how can I correct mm-hmm. and encourage? How can I, right? Yeah, one is almost preventative. Exactly. And, and I, I think that that's one of the, the things for me that I have most definitely learned about parenting. And I, I think it's one of the things that, in particular, I think a lot of young parents miss and forget, is that parenting is a real long game. This is a long game. And in so many ways, you know, we go into our parenting style with a level of pride that may or may not be healthy because we base our children's response, we base their success, we base how they treat others, and, and we base all those things as a reflection of us. And, and so mm-hmm. when our kids misbehave or they get in trouble at school, you, you know, when you as a parent get called into the principal's office, you know, in so many ways, your pride is harm. It, it, it's it's your, your harm. And if we can't be aware of that, then our reactions to it, we go to our lowest common denominator, which is typically parenting out of desperation. Mm-hmm. And parenting out of desperation doesn't get us, it doesn't get us where we want to go as parents. Ne- never mind where we hope our children will go, which which in my case, and I, I hope for a lot of the parents who would listen to this, we hope our kids will go further than we will. We hope that they will be better than we are in the relationships they have and the occupations that they take on, the ways they pursue their passions, even in the way that they parent someday. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Good catch on that because, yeah, the discipline, you know, as I was asking that question, I was thinking to myself that I haven't done much disciplining per se i've done kind of like you i started raising my child my oldest son as i was brought up a little bit with some spanking but i was like no this is not working at Mm -hmm. all this is not how i want to do it and so from there on it was more of like how do i communicate and that became my biggest thing so communication almost replaces discipline where it's like if we have an issue I'd rather sit down and have a conversation and make sure that the point is heard and clear and rather than having to deal with anything else really. Because I feel like in the long run, being a long game again, like you say, 
it's our ability to be able to communicate that's going to matter the most. If we can't, you know, especially with the, during the teenage years, and you'll know better than me, but especially during the teenage year, if that communication line is not broken or already established, you're in for a hell of a ride as a parent. Mm-hmm. And at what point does it really start? Now, somebody like just me being a young parent thought, oh, it will start when he starts speaking. But then I realized that there came a point where he could understand what I was saying, but he couldn't talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, no, 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 it actually starts now. But then when you start reading literature, it's like, no, it starts way earlier than that. The moment they're born, it starts. Even, you know, that, you know, we talk, you know, there's so much, so much research being done now on attachment and all the different forms of attachment, the different ways in which we do attachment. And it's like so much of those early trends of attachment are formed in literally, even sometimes in some cases, the first days of our Mm -hmm. children being born. Mm -hmm. And in so many ways, they start to pick up, you know, the, the general posture and, and even like a, I never used to talk like this, but they even pick up the energy that we give off as adults. I think it's a lot more of that than we would like to admit. And so, Mm -hmm. even for us to be paying close attention to who we are, the energy that we're giving off towards our kids, so that when we decide we want to spend time with them, even when they become teenagers, right, that we've established a foundation where where even where where they want to be around the kind of energy mm-hmm. that we as parents give off. And I think that that's one of the things that we can often misunderstand as we start to think that somehow we're, we're in more control than we actually are. And um, being able to kind of relinquish the control so that we can come alongside our children is very, very important. Now, now, there are moments when we need to teach them not to run out into the street and, and when we need to teach them, you know, when it's bedtime, when it's like all the routines and rhythms of life and even how we talk to people. But recognizing that that we're, we're raising little adults and they're going to need to know how to be in charge of their own lives. And uh, I would prefer that they have had enough time in particular in their teenage years to practice what that's going to be like before they leave Mm -hmm. the safety of my home Mm -hmm. you know that that they always have a place to fall back and and feel like they can recover recuperate even from maybe some of the challenges that the world throws at them yeah yeah no very important i think that could be key to the question of um knowing yourself building our identity as fathers mothers and like growing to be able to step in that role, like where does the work begin? Because for a parent who's in that dilemma of exercising control versus relinquishing control, there's got to be some degree of who am I and what is my energy signature? What energy am I projecting out there? Like you got to, there's, there's got to be some degree of self-awareness that we've been working on for some time to be able to even catch ourselves in those moments and stop ourselves. So, so where does the work begin really or where do we begin to look at as parents yeah i'm sure that hard um, question well i I can give a generalized question how does that sound i I think that this is one of the keys (laughs) for me is that i i think that the first step to solving any problem or even the first step towards growth is being able to name that there is a problem and that there or that there is an area that we 
we want to see ourselves grow in and grow into. And, and so if we can't stop every once in a while and ask ourselves, you know, who, the who am I question, what am I about? Who do I want to be perceived as even? Then I think we are, we are just subject to our own instincts, our own desires. And ultimately people are experiencing an unintentional you. Mm-hmm. And, and so being able to name those kinds of things can be the first thing. So even if, you know, the parents that are listening, the dads that are listening, maybe predominantly dads, I'm not sure that are listening today is, is to be able to go, okay, well, how would my children define my reaction, my reactive responses? How would they resp- How would they define them? Would they, would they be angry? Would, would they be loving? Would they be nurturing? Would they be disciplinary? Would they be strategic? Would they be, are our kids only experiencing encouragement when they succeed? Um, because I, I would actually argue that the moments your children will remember your greatest forms of encouragement is just shortly after a failure. Um, that they <laughs> um, That's the moments that they will remember. It, it's the moment in my, in my case these days, it is the moment when my son gets off of the soccer pitch, having had a terrible game. When my parenting needs to up its game. My game needs to be better in those moments mm-hmm. than just a unconscious reaction to how I feel about what, what happened on the, on the field. And, I, and so I, I, I do think that that's essentially one of the key parts of kind of what I do as a, as a coach, um, and even in this class that I'm about to teach is that I'm, I'm, I am going to say, look, you you can learn skills in parenting, but at the end of the day, it's not a skill that your, your children are going to remember. It's not a skill that's going to shape your child. It's you. It's your behavior. It's your modeled behaviors. It's the, it's the way in which they, see and experience you and what you're taking responsibility for. So I, I do think that, you know, some of our greatest moments as parents also come shortly after some of our, our big mistakes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know that the moment Absolutely. when, and as a Absolutely. dad, I do fly off the handle. I, I can lose my temper, you know? And, and I think my greatest parenting moments happen just shortly after that. Yeah. And uh, at least I hope they do. And they haven't always. Life and parenting is messy. But there have been many times when I have to go back to my children and say, oh, I overreacted. I I didn't listen. That outburst was more about me than it was about you. And I'm not going to make this about me, but I am going to tell you, I, I expect more of myself to treat each other, mm-hmm. to treat others with kindness. So I want to treat you well. So, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to apologize when apologies need to be made is some of our greatest parenting moments. One of the things that we often forgot, forget as parents or individuals is that it's just how much our children look up to us and how much mm-hmm. they put us on that pedestal that for us to come back and show that no, I'm human and 
I also bleed. I also flaw. I have flaws. I get angry. And most importantly, I know when to apologize. It's huge. It's huge. And I'm only starting to learn how much, like I've, I've always been somewhat conscious of it, but now that my son is a little bit older, I'm really starting to learn how much he looks up to me, how much he, you know, how much I, the, the image that he holds me to. And I've been deconstructing that ideal in his mind of me being a perfect individual gradually. And I started early with him because of how much he looked up to me, especially because we were going through parental conflict. And one of the things that kids do in parental conflict is, is they, try to, they try to please whichever parent that they're with at that particular point, almost like a survival mm-hmm. instinct that they have, right? So if I can do this and that to make daddy happy and live up to, you know, these Im- this image and expectation that is present here in front of me, then great. Then they try to aspire to be that. But then it's like when you show, when you go back to them and you apologize and you show them that, hey, no, no, sometimes I'm wrong. And I, most importantly, I know when I'm wrong and I'll come back and I'll fix it. I bet you they'll remember those type of lessons, you know, and that's probably why you're saying also it's like where we get the best teaching or learning moments is because I think that's where, that's what kids really take on later on, Mm -hmm. right? And it may come as a form of like something that they have to, they go through an experience when they're older and they're like, I should probably apologize about this. I should probably go back and fix my wrong. But if their whole life, they've never been taught how to do that. They've never seen anybody really do that, that they look up to and value to that degree. Then they're just, they're, they're being set up for failure. A, B, I mean, where are they going to model that from again? Mm-hmm. You know, parenting as a model behavior. Yeah, you know, I, I think yeah, that is exactly it. It's like the, the, our children learn how to apologize from us. That's like maybe, maybe a, a relative or a really <laughs> great teacher. Maybe. Yeah. But even, even in the relationships and friendships that they have, you know, they, pre- they might practice apologizing to their friends. But, but honestly, without, without seeing an example, of what that looks like. Where do they learn that from? A sitcom? Well, they don't even watch sitcoms anymore. Right? So, uh, you know, you know we, we can't rely on the television to teach our children how to do that. It's a funny thing. My, my 14-year-old, who he was 13 when he asked me this question, but he, he asked me, like, Dad, how do you say sorry? How are you supposed to say sorry? I'm not sure if I've shared. Have I shared this with you before? No, no, no. Okay, it's an it's an interesting thing because at the time I was doing a bunch of training. I'm a I'm a trained facilitator in in the restorative justice program, uh, restorative process, and uh, this is a big part of that. Is like somebody who's caused harm, and so you know, how do you help somebody who's caused harm take responsibility for their actions with their victims? That's essentially what it mm-hmm. is. It's an interesting thing because because as you know as you know, I'll backtrack a little bit and give you a story. But my, my wife always used to say when our kids would say sorry for doing something, she would say, well, you know, tr- just prove it by changing your behavior, right? Like there should be some action that takes place after that. And probably us adults could hear that too for ourselves, you know, when we blow it. Yeah. But, you know, because, you know, losing your temper on your kid and then coming and apologizing for it is only as good as the next time you've looking at losing your temper again. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> right and mm-hmm. then being able to to handle that but one of the things that i said to him and you know when your 13 year old asks you a question like that it's a little tricky because he you know we we tell our children all the time to say sorry you know say sorry like oh you hit your little brother you know what it was say sorry 
you know, you took that thing, you shouldn't say sorry, right? All those kind of things. And so we're teaching them the behavior. We're, we're teaching them the words to say, but, but the words that we're, we're teaching them don't have that much to do with what happens inside. Mm-hmm. It's a mm-hmm. practice. I get it. And it's important. But what we need to do is help our kids to be reflective enough to recognize, I am apologizing because I caused harm. And so in restorative practice and in a healthy apology, whether this is with our kids or teaching our kids to do this, or even with us and our own partners and relationship, a healthy, powerful apology comes with being able to name the harm that you caused. I am sorry that I was, I was disrespectful with the words that I just chose. I'm sorry that I was disrespectful when I rolled my eyes as I turned and walked away from you as a parent. I apologize, right, for, you know, being careless and breaking the whatever, right? This is because I know that you work hard and you had to buy that and now you have to fix that. So being able and capable of taking responsibility for the harm that we have caused is the truest, the truer form of a healthy apology. But mm-hmm. but we're instinctively mm-hmm. taught to just say sorry. Well, you know, I tell my kids to say sorry all the time. It doesn't mean they're they they feel bad or they or that they really are sorry. They just know mm-hmm. the lingo. Yeah, and, and so we're trying yeah. to teach them something deep. And a lot of that comes from our ability or to know ourselves and to know kind of what what's happening here and and those around us. That's a lot of what I end up doing, even in my in my practices as a growth coach and, and using mm-hmm. the tool of the Enneagram. And now, so you're, you are still working on your workshop or upcoming mm-hmm. workshop right now. Are there any elements that you've put out in the workshop that may tie into what we're talking about that you can give us a little bit of sneak peek about? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think, I think one of the first major points that I'm going to make, and I, I, I'll just very briefly say this, but one of the most important parts of being a parent is I think being is is about growing as a human yourself. Every great parent that I've ever seen uh, included, you know, what I'm trying to do in my own life and story is that I want my kids to be growing, transforming individuals. And so first and foremost, healthy people make healthy parents. And so being a growing individual, being a growing human is, is probably one of the greatest gifts that you will ever be able to give your children is a growing you. Uh, the more that you're growing, the more that you are able to allow your children the space to grow and to become who they were meant to be. And I, I think that that's one of the key things is that the more I've come to know myself, the more I've been able to give empathy and be empathetic towards people who are not like me, who, who see the world differently than I do, who experience all of the different things that kind of come at them. Um, differently. And I see that in my own children. Mm-hmm. I, I, I might have tried to raise them with the same values and the same principles and all of those things. And all of that is good. We want to instill these strong values in our kids. Um, though, at least the ones we've chosen to keep from our parents, right? Like we were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, <laughs> but to, be, to be quite frank, they are not the same people as we are. And that probably ends up being one of our biggest mistakes is that we think we're always trying to raise a mini-me. Mm. 
And if we're trying to raise a mini me, we're trying to make. If you're a basketball player and you want you, you so desperately want your son or your daughter to be a great basketball player, you might be placing something on them that simply is not them. Now, if you love sports and you love physical activity, and it's important to you that that your kids are thinking about the health of their body and those kinds of things, then I most definitely think you want to instill in them a value of being active, eating eating mm-hmm. well, right? Sleeping and routines and all of those kinds of things. But, but if we're not self-aware enough to know that actually the little humans that are running around in your house are not you, it sounds harsh, but they are not you. And, uh, you know, I've got, I've got four and none of those four, even though some of them have even the same physical features, they look a little bit like I do. They have their own personalities. They have their own passions. They have their own ways in which they see the world and experience the world. They're motivated by different things than I am. And I want them to know those things. I don't need them to know what, what I'm motivated by. I need them to discover what they're motivated by. And to be completely honest, I wasn't able to do that until I started to realize that I am a particular type of person. I see the world a particular perspective. I happen to be an Enneagram type seven. You know, the Enneagram has nine types on it. So I'm going to talk a little bit about this in the class. Um, Mm -hmm. Nine different ways of seeing, nine different strategies of kind of making our way in the world. You know, and they're, you know, all nuanced in with our story and how how we were trained, how we were taught, how we, what values we were taught as kids. You know, all of those kinds of things starts to play in to what's going on. If I need my kids to react to everything the same way that I do, then what do I do when my kid panics because they saw a spider? Yeah. Yeah. Right? Like, well, what do I do? I have when, a phobia of spiders, so right? I understand. Okay, so this is a good example, right? It's like, well, I could yell at them and say, well, I could yell at you and say, right, Linda, that's just, it's just a silly little thing. Don't be silly, right? Because I'm not afraid of spiders, so you shouldn't be either. But you are. So imposing, imposing that on you is is actually not helpful to your development. No, not at all. But teaching you how to deal with your fear, teaching you how to deal with maybe bigger things like anxiety, like failure, like even you know motivating yourself to get up in the morning or to excel at something, whether it's academics or sports or, or something else. Those are the things that we want our children to see and to and to lean into. And the only way to do that is to get to know them, to see who they are. Now, that doesn't mean we teach them to or allow them to be disrespectful, but it means we can teach them how to pay attention to themselves. Look, you mm-hmm. can't teach something that you can't do yourself. So yes. th- this is the yes. point that I'm trying to make: is that until I'm able to lean more fully into who I am as a human, um, the more I'm able to do that, the more I'm able to empower my children to be able to do the same. 
I don't need them mm-hmm. to be Evan. I need them to be Josiah. That's what I desire for them. I, I, I want Caroline to be this person that she's this confident woman that she's becoming. You know, I, I want Erica to always lean into kind of this unique way that she sees the world and the way that she wants to teach it and the words she uses. And I always want Otto to be able to come at the different challenges that he sees with a sense of harmony and peace and calm and wisdom. Right? Like, these are my four children, and, and they see the world differently than I do. So we need to parent them in unique ways. Yeah, yeah. You know. So that's the first step that I'm, I'm going to be teaching and talking a little bit about is, is just like, how do, we, how do we come to know ourselves um, so that yeah. we can teach our kids and empower our kids to become themselves? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is so, so important because eventually, yeah, we do have to teach them how to be their own person. Mm-hmm. And if we never figured it out for ourselves, which the growth is all about, especially in the later years, how, how are we going to pass it down, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing about it too is um, the element of motivating kids, what really motivates them, right? That goes both ways. Like what motivates them to be forthcoming, share, adopt certain values versus what motivates them to disengage from certain values that are being taught, disengage from what they're seeing. Often spoken about case of alcoholic parents, you know, one child becomes alcoholic, the other child goes the other way. What's motivating that child at that particular point? A lot of it, I think, for the other, for the kid who walks away from that and try to not model that behavior, comes back into the knowledge of self again, awareness of self. They have a strong enough sense of identity that they know what they don't want to be. They know what they're not and they know what they want to be even more importantly, to me at least. You know, even like kind of like going back to the whole issue of like how we discipline or how we communicate, how we correct behavior. Again, kids will do anything to not be punished. (laughs) Kids will say anything to not get themselves in trouble. Kids are like (laughs) perfect lawyers to themselves, right? They will not self-incriminate willy-nilly. (laughs) And so it's like, again, like what are you motivating your kids to do with your behavior, with your conduct, with your energy that you're putting out there? You know, that's one of the first big thoughts that's coming into my mind as you speak there. The other one is... I mean, you asked me last time the question, I think I mentioned in the past show of like, so who is Lendo? And I froze. Mm-hmm. And it, is that supposed to be something that's easy-ish to answer? Because one of the reasons why I froze is because I wanted to answer that question, but not from a perspective of Lendo as a paramedic. He's a host. He's a this. He's a that. Because those are just factions of what I do that don't, that represent parts of me, but not the whole of me. And so, like, how do we build that definition stripping some of these things that we do to make a buck some of these things that we do maybe as pastime as much as they may be part of us as much as they say like how do we go about like how do we answer that question to ourselves who we are yeah yeah and i think that some of that is is like being able to understand our own you know past stories our own even our own childhood wounds and some of those kinds of things and and being able to articulate just even the things that we've come to learn about who we are. And I think some of that has to do with 
being able to accept and understand what we're capable of. Mm-hmm. And and until we we have a good until we're willing to embrace what we're capable of, we can't fully embrace what we hope to be. Like under the best circumstances, we're the best of ourselves. But we also have this capacity or this ability to be really the worst. It's in there. So the best of you is present and also the challenge, the shadow of you is present inside of you as well. And the very things that we say we're not capable of are usually the things that we really need to pay attention to. Here's a story. My first son was born. He was cholery. He had choleric. Uh, he was choleric and lots of, a lot of late nights, middle of the nights crying. And I remember I was holding him one night. It was probably three, four in the morning. I was exhausted. It'd been days of it. You know, it wasn't just one night, but days of it. And I was so worn out. And I remember holding him. And there was this moment of such frustration, not, not just with him, but myself of not knowing how to get him to stop, like to help him. Both. It was a desire to help him, but also just a desire to get him to shut up <laughs> so that we could sleep. Mm-hmm. I don't know how else to say it. There was a moment when I realized, oh, this is, this is the moment when people shake their babies. This is a level of frustration that they come to. And I saw in myself who I never believed could be there. I saw a part of me that was there. And it required me to, to put him down in his crib and to simply walk away. And that is what I did. Just put him down in his crib, put his covers over him, walked out of the room. But the capacity was there. Mm-hmm. I don't want to use the word potential because I like to use potential in a positive way. But yeah. But it was most definitely there, that level of desperation and exhaustion was there. And so those are those moments, right, when we have to make choices about who are we going to be and how is that going to be. And that, that comes to a place of, of recognizing. And self-awareness is one of those things that helps us to recognize that. It's like, no, my pride actually... I have a pride, I have enough pride that it can get in my way of parenting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, discipline my child when you get home from school because some, excuse me, something that happened at school before actually asking what happened at school. Yeah. Before hearing them out. Right? That's a pride thing. Yeah. And so being able to you know, listen to our kids, even when our kids practice lying to us, you know, to be able to be calm enough to say, you're better than that. And my response to you can be better than that, too. And we only get to those moments as parents when we know ourselves. When we can sense, oh, I'm feeling particular, I'm feeling overly aggressive right now towards my child. Why? Why am I feeling aggressive towards them? Is that about uh, my passion and heart and desire for them, or is that about me and the the reflection they, of me that's going on? What's happening there? And that's a little bit, you know, what we're going to talk about in the second half of the class that we're going to be doing is, you know, what's the posture? 
that our mm-hmm. kids give off and why, you know, what, what is the energy they're giving off at any particular moment? And my hope is that we can get down to some real practical kind of moments. I recognize that, mm-hmm. that the Enneagram is a, is a helpful tool in a lot of layers. And one of the layers that we'll primarily focus on is, is known as the stances. Mm-hmm. And I can quickly give you the little sneak peek into it. Um, essentially, three of yeah, the please. Enneagram types, based on their motivation, have an aggressive kind of an energy or an at energy. They come at problems at others for different reasons, um, which we'll uncover a little bit in, in, the, in the evening together. Then three of the other types are a little bit more dependent or a little bit more toward energy. In other words, their response, even their understanding of themselves is, is dependent a little bit more on how they're treated, how their parents are treating them, how their teachers are treating them. Even the response of others towards them is, is dependent. And they have an energy that wants to move in towards others. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a little bit warmer feeling. You can, you can see this in children. If, if you watch your child, we each have a dominant stance. And the, the last one is a withdrawn stance. It's a little bit calmer. It's a little bit more lean away. So it's a little bit more away energy. And they, they lean away for particular reasons. Now, I'm going to make this point in the class, and I'll make it today, is that, is that we, we use all three of those stances throughout the course of a day or a week or whatever. But based on our Enneagram type, the way we were raised, um, we typically have one that comes to the surface as a dominant one. It's really kind of our go-to energy that we use. Mm -hmm. And then we have one that's quite neglected. And our children have learned these strategies and they pick up these strategies. And so, so being able to make observation, and my hope is that this is where we'll get really practical. Mm-hmm. Being able to make observation first and foremost about yourself. Do you, you know, Lendo, do you have an aggressive stance, do, you know, aggressive energy? Do you have a toward or like a, a stronger connectional energy? Or, or, or do, you, do you lean away? Are you a little bit more withdrawn for a bit while you make observation or, or, or do whatever's kind of happening inside of you? Mm-hmm. And if you can recognize those kinds of energies in yourself throughout any given day, and you can start paying attention to that in your children, then one of the key techniques or practices that you can start to learn is, okay, so what's the appropriate energy for this particular moment with my child? In other words, if your child is aggressively coming at you, are we sure that responding, maybe if you're an aggressive style parent, are you sure that an aggressive energy is the right energy to, to put back at them? Because our children go at, they come aggressively towards something that they think they need. Mm-hmm. So if your child is trying to get something that they need, and you're feeding back aggressive energy at them, then are we having the most productive interaction? You know, interaction that's helping our children to grow, to get their needs met, to even um, develop a skill. My son, you know, my youngest son, he, he has a dominant withdrawing energy. He, he leans back. Mm-hmm. And, and now, for him, go ahead. Question to that, like, I don't know what your dominant energy is, but what happens when you have two dominant withdrawn type of mm-hmm energy yeah see i think that's an interesting one okay so this is this is kind of fascinating just just look at the the way the two of us 
are sitting on this screen. And I'm just going to get a little practical and then I'm going to try to answer your question. <laughs> right? Good. For those who are listening, I am completely leaning into this microphone and this camera screen. <laughs> right? Just physically. I'm, I am coming yeah. at you. Mm-hmm. And this is a posture that I have. You can see it. You can even see it across my shoulders as I lean in towards the camera. You've set your microphone up so that you can lean a little bit back. Right? Your posture, I'm doing it now for you to see. But your posture is just a little bit more laid back. Even you're further away from the camera so we can see more of your body. Okay? So I'm leaning back in so you can hear me well. But it's like, these are two very interesting postures. One is an aggressive stance and one is a withdrawn stance. I'm not saying that that's who you are on a regular basis or that that's your dominant stance. I'm just saying that's what it looks like right now. Mm -hmm. If I can recognize in my son when he is withdrawing and when I'm feeling aggressive, I can take a pause. And taking a pause as a parent is one of the most important skills, practices you'll you'll ever learn. To take a deep breath and to ask yourself, okay, what's happening here in front of me? Is my observation Mm -hmm. correct? And your observation of what's happening in front of you is most definitely being contributed to by what's happening inside of you. Those two things are, are not disconnected. So if I know the kind of energy that I'm wanting to put off and I can identify the kind of energy that my son is giving off, I can create space. In his case, I need to create space. Because he's a withdrawer, I need to respond with a little bit more safe, withdrawn energy. And what I'm doing when that happens is I'm leaning back and I'm giving him space to fill in between us. And then I might say something like, you've been pretty quiet today. What's on your mind? He gets in the car after a soccer game, even. He doesn't say much. Hey, bud, what? how did you feel about that game? Right? I don't have to say how I feel about that game right off the bat. Mm-hmm. But my aggressive nature is to have the first thing he hears me say is encur- some form of encouragement, some form of excitement. Right. So to be able to read his posture is to be able to create know what posture I need so that I can create space for my son to speak. Mm-hmm. And if I'm only aggressive, I never create that space. Yeah, that is brilliant. I love that. Right. I so love that. As a podcast host, right, you, you do this. Like I, I'm, I, run my own, I got my own podcast too, right? Like uh, Unpacked is, mm-hmm. has been one of the key ways that I've, I've even learned that skill is that today I'm a guest on your podcast. So I'm trying to be a little bit more aggressive and talk more. Mm-hmm. But when, when you're on Unpacked, it's my yeah. job literally to create space for the guest to speak and share their story and whatever it is that they're talking about. It's a different posture. It's a different stance. It's a different kind of energy. And we do it. It happens in our homes. It happens in us. And one of the great gifts of the Enneagram is that it not only helps us to understand your dominant stance, like what's your go-to energy. But it also yeah. helps you to, to discover the motive and, and the reason why you're doing that energy. So in my son's case, he's an Enneagram type nine. He's a peacemaker. Harmony is really important to him. 
And so when he begins to withdraw back, it's usually because he has perceived that there is some form of conflict that's taking place in front of him. He doesn't want to be a part of it. He doesn't want to contribute to it. So he leans away. Mm. So if the coach has yelled at him, go ahead, go ahead, ask your question. Thank you all for tuning into another episode of the Super Daddy Club. If you've enjoyed our journey today and want to be a part of our growing family, make sure to hit that like button and subscribe to our channel. Your support means the world to us, and it's what keeps this club going strong. Don't forget to share this episode with other super dads and super moms you know, and join us next time for more adventures and insights. Remember, every like, subscribe, and share helps us create content that celebrates and supports dads everywhere. Until the next time, stay super. Yeah, and and just me connecting things here, but again, what we're talking about, how to motivate children. Mm-hmm. Right in various aspects, various circumstances, you know how to motivate them to speak and engage with us. How to motivate them to be forthcoming with things that have been they've been balling up. It's very important to know who they are, to know when to give them that space, what kind of space they need, how to approach them, be conscious of our own demeanor when we're approaching them. Uh, one of the things that you learn about communication when going through all the court stuff, blah blah blah, is that. If you're going to go speak with somebody, you have to be intentional in terms of what am I trying to achieve with this communication, with this exchange, what I'm trying, what am I trying to gain out of it, right? If I'm coming to speak with my son, for example, and my goal is to get him to, I don't know, let me know who broke the vase, and I start in such a way that he starts just shying away, withdrawing back and telling me, you know, all kinds of excuses, oh, it just fell gravity, who knows? I didn't really achieve, right? <laughs> like I didn't really achieve anything there, right? But if I can take a step back, just take that pause that we're talking about and say, okay, like, you know, start working with him slowly and just let him, you know, like work with, give him that space, let him speak, let him express his ideas, maybe ask just simple questions. Now you're starting to really like get into a conversation where you're going to be able to get something like what you desire, what you're trying to get out of it. Right. Same thing during the interviews when we're talking about here. Our job as host is to extract information almost. And a part of that is like being a good listener, giving the host that space, making them feel comfortable. And well, with that has to come, we need to know when to shut up. We need to know when to, when we're saying too much almost, (laughs) Mm -hmm. like all of these things. But I think I do understand and correct me if I'm off here, but I do understand what you were saying earlier about how do we motivate children mm-hmm. and how do we get them to even get out of their shells? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think, I think that one of the, one of the things that comes to mind for me is just, is being able to recognize, right. That our kids aren't actually motivated by anything less than love. <laughs> And and mm-hmm. and, lo- and I say that in a very broad way that love looks very different for a lot of us. So recognizing what our children need is so important, and recognize that our kids don't always see the bigger picture; and they just experience the moment. So you can say, "Well, I'm disciplining you because I love you," and that is true. <laughs> That's a true statement, but it sure don't feel like it in the moment does it <laughs> like we were kids once weren't we mm-hmm. yeah yeah in the moment it didn't feel like it <laughs> right and so it's like so being able to you know whether it's a timeout or it's a, a grounding or it's a whatever it might be 
it is being able to say, this isn't, I think you need a bit of time to think about this. So I'm going to give it to you. You're going to experience a little bit of time. <laughs> You're going mm-hmm. to have some free time on your hands, so to speak, while you think about mm-hmm. this. And for me, recognizing that, you know, when I first started parenting, a lot of this message I was sending my children was that my love for them was based on their behavior. Right? They get kind words when they have good behavior and they get not kind words when they don't have good behavior. But that is a shallow version of the kind of love that I want my children to experience. So, and I, and I think that's where each parent has to figure out those creative ways that they're going to connect with their children and being able to know what your child needs and what's happening. And that's one of the things that I think is really, really important where the Enneagram really does play in is that you are able to actually start to identify, okay, what's happening? here? Why is my child aggressively coming at me? Well, they might be afraid that they're going to fail. So they're trying so hard to succeed that they're now being overly aggressive. Mm-hmm. Have I made a suggestion that somehow I don't believe they're, they're enough for me? Because I guarantee they will overcompensate if they think they're not enough. Yeah. You know, that, and that's just like, yeah. that, that's often seen in the Enneagram type three, right? And every one of the different ways in which our, we and our children demonstrate our dominant stance is based upon a reason for that. For me, I'm a seven. I can actually tell them to you very fast. This is very, very fast. I'm a seven. I have a conscious motivation to avoid psychological and emotional pain. I will aggressively try to avoid pain. When I'm aggressive, it's usually because I'm scared of something. The eight is also in the aggressive stance. They are are typically, they have a conscious motivation to avoid vulnerability. When an eight gets aggressive, it's typically because they feel unsafe. And so they're protecting themselves. Mm -hmm. The nine is a withdrawer. They're known as the peacemaker. They typically are withdrawing back because they're create, they're motivated by, by comfort. And so the discomfort of the current situation that's happening in front of them causes them to lean away. The one is, is, is a toward or a stance. They're known as the perfectionist. And they oftentimes are trying to make things just right, just perfect, so that everyone can be present and they can be with everyone toward energy. So they lean in. The two is also in the in the toward energy. They they're known as the helper. They have a, a conscious motivation to serve others and to meet other people's needs. And it's a very toward heart kind of an energy that they come at it at you with it. They come toward you with. The three is in the aggressive stance. They're known as the achiever. So they they are always going at what they want. They're trying to achieve mm-hmm. and accomplish something. Uh, they think that the more that they can get done, the more that people will love them. And, and in children, we see it. Right. Um, how does a three and a nine? Sorry. Yeah. How does a three and a nine connect, or like how can those two somewhat exist in one person? Because one of them is seems like a disruptive energy. Mm-hmm. Like a three will come in there, and I, I I will use those terms where it's like a three will disrupt a room with whatever they're bringing in. A nine will keep that room at peace. Mm-hmm. It sounds like. Yeah. And I only say that because I'm kind of caught up in between both, but it they seem to be complementary 
where what is peace for a three? Well, peace for a three is it could be the achievement, mm -hmm. the combating failure successfully, or the idea that I'm and 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 satisfying that drive, that ambition, that motivation, mm -hmm. and that can be the thing that keeps them at peace. But then for the nine, peace is a very big thing, and the two can be confounded. Yeah, and so. Yeah. Where do those two connect? Yeah, I think, um, and then just remind me to get back to the numbers, but this would be my answer yeah, to that please. question. Yeah, yeah. I think that the key for the three is, is they want to achieve things, they want to accomplish things, and all those things are good, as long as they're not doing them in order to be loved. So recognizing for a three that they are enough before they start achieving everything is key. So we can see threes that are extremely productive in a healthy, healthy threes can be extremely productive, but they're not doing it in order to prove something or earn something. Unhealthy threes can be very, very productive. And you can tell, you can tell, I know that you, you know, you, you'll know they're trying to accomplish something because they're trying to prove something. And it's a, it's a question of worth that they're trying to prove. A nine can be at peace and can lean back very calmly with a great deal of harmony, energy that's, that's very calm and very, uh, you can sense that they have a deep desire to be at peace, but they can also share their, their thoughts and their opinions about things, but not in a, in a stressful sort of a way. An unhealthy nine um, so badly wants peace that they either won't share their opinion on something until they explode, um, which is not peace at all. But right, like there's a cost to each of the things that we do. There's a cost to overworking and trying to achieve something so that we'll be loved. There's a cost to trying to always make sure that you're making peace for everybody else. And it grows in us resentment, right? And these are some of the mm -hmm. shadow, I just named a couple of the shadow sides of, of the Enneagram type three and nine and some of the positive sides. Mm -hmm. You can sense it. Yeah. You can look That's at somebody cool. who's like relatively that. quiet and calm, but they don't look like they're at peace. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, absolutely. Sorry, if you can get back to yeah, the number, I think yeah. you're at four. Yeah. Yeah. So the four sits in the, in the withdrawn stance. They're known as the individualist. They have a real desire to essentially be unique. And so oftentimes they withdraw back in order to figure out how they feel about what's happening around them. Just imagine this in children, right? So just imagine these stances in children. A child might be leaning back because they, they don't want to cause a disruption, right? They might never share their opinion. If, even if you ask them where they want it. My son doesn't do this. I watched him at soccer. They were trying to decide where they were going to go. He's an Enneagram 9, right? And they were trying to decide where they were going to eat. Literally just stood there. He didn't say a word. Somebody finally suggests Subway. He's like, oh, oh, yeah, okay, Subway sounds good. He never says his opinion first. It's a withdrawn stance. A, a four would withdraw back because they want to figure out how they feel about what's happening in front of them. It's more internalized fear or uh, internalized emotion. Then the five uh, is also in the withdrawn stance. They're known as the observer or the investigator. And they will often, they're leaning back to make observation of what's happening, to learn what's happening. How does this work? They don't want to contribute yet to the conversation because they don't know enough information to rationally and logically 
engage in that conversation. So they lean away. Mm-hmm. They, they try to conserve a lot of their energy because honestly, personal and particular conversations around emotional things is quite exhausting for them. The six is, uh, they're known as the loyalist. They sit in the towards stance and they, they have a general sense of kind of what's going on around them, um, what could go wrong even around them. And they want to they be essentially protective. They, they, they want to be prepared for what could go wrong to keep themselves and other people safe. So they're always trying to kind of towards others, bringing others towards them. Now, I just think about all of those different stances I just went through in the context of children. When you're a child, you can watch it. You can see it. And this is how I tell people. When you're trying to figure out your kid's number, I, I, I always actually really kind of shy away from encouraging them to do too much of that without some experience in the, with the Enneagram. But you can identify mm-hmm. your child's probably their core stance. So like, let's, let's use your, so how old is your oldest? Uh, eight years old. Okay, he's eight. All right. So he's old enough for you to know. What was it? What's his name? In general, how would you say, what sort of energy does Trayvon give off in general? Is it, uh, is he a pretty aggressive kid? Is he a real towards kind of a kid? Or is he a little bit more withdrawn kind of a kid? A lot more withdrawn. And that's why I was asking, because I feel like me and him share a lot there, right? Okay. And um, so with him, I got to pry a little bit harder in order to get information, in order to get him to like, tell me, you know, what, what do you want to eat? It could be a very simple question, or do you want this or do you want that? And um, I'll probably end up deciding he's going to lollygag so much around the, I don't know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I could, maybe, sure, yeah. But I'm like, no, but what do you want? Mm-hmm. It's important for me to know. Do you like this? Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. really got to... <laughs> I got to so, like press him for answers all the time. <laughs> and I actually think that that's one of the, this is an interesting thing because for the Enneagram type nine, making decisions is one of the most challenging. It, it can be a really a, ch- a challenge. And mostly because they're, they're, they almost so quickly try to figure out, well, what do you want? Cause I want to make you happy. Mm-hmm. And um, the only way for that to like, so, so they're often they will find themselves kind of merging with what you want. So what I would do and what we do with our nine is we will often give him two choices. Do you want burgers or do you want pasta? Mm-hmm. And then we have to wait. Now we've taught him some of this. I've taught him to say, hey, look, one of the things I want you to be able to do as, a, as an adult is be able to, to make good choices, make quick choices, even about simple things. So here's an option. Like, what do you, what do you want for supper? And he'll say, well, I don't care. And I was like, well, that's not on the menu. Right. It's just not on the menu. So um, I'm good to make either one. And then he'll say, well, I don't, I still don't really care. I said, okay, well, one I can make in three minutes and the other is going to take 30 minutes. Do you care about that? And I just gave him a different, do you see what I mean? I just gave him a different way Mm -hmm. of answering these two options. So I'm teaching him how to make a decision, but he almost is always going to say, well, it doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And so we're, we are, it is true. It feels a little bit like you're pulling out information all the time out of your Enneagram type nine child. But, but remember parenting is a long game. 
And you're teaching him how to make a choice. You're trying to teach him how to make decisions. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I I was thinking to myself, man, it might be almost easier to have a child who just comes at you (laughs) because then you know what you're dealing with. (laughs) But then on the other side, you know, that that's an energy that you really got to teach a child how to control that energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because and not everybody will always be ready for that. Exactly. Yeah. And what I would really want to stress too is that aggressive energy, toward energy, or even withdrawn energy, none of those three energies are bad. None of them as a dominant energy. You're using all three of them. Like there are definitely times, um, there, there are most definitely times when my son on the soccer pitch, the Enneagram type nine is an aggressive. He is using his aggressive stance. He has to, he's playing a sport, you know, mm-hmm. sport is, mm-hmm. is aggressive in nature. And so he's got to learn how to do that and to figure that out. But I tell you what's fascinating when, you know, he's old enough now push comes to shove out on the, out on the pitch, you know, and they're, they're competitive. So things get pushy sometimes, right? They're, they're junior hires. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating to watch him take one of his teammates, throw his arm around one of his teammates and just turn him away from the, from the thing that's going on. Mm-hmm. It's his nine. And he's really good at it. Really, really good at it. So do you see how it starts to show up? I'm proud of him for that. I encourage, I continue to encourage him to be a peacemaker in that regard. But it, it's knowing kind of what's the energy that I'm giving off? What's the energy that he needs right now? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I tease him. I'm using my son a lot because he is in the withdrawn stance. I, I I do have a child that's in the aggressive stance, so we can talk about that in a second. But it's like before a game, he walks out onto the field so calmly, like he could take a nap out there on the grass. <laughs> and there are moments when I, I, you know, he's big. He's as big as me now. When I'll go over there and go like, "Hey, do you need me to rough you up a little bit?" You know, just slap you around a little bit, you know, you know, get the blood going here, you know, and sometimes that is literally what he needs. He needs me to be a little bit more aggressive towards him and shake him. So he wakes up. So the, the moment the whistle goes, he's ready to play. And that's yep. just knowing my child, what he needs in order to get ready to go play well, succeed. It's the same at school. It's the same in all the other areas. My aggressive child, mm-hmm. when it's go time, I don't need to tell her it's go time. She'll fight. She will yeah, fight probably me. Probably just annoy her. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And and I I certainly don't need to tell my aggressive stance child to calm down when she's upset. It won't work because they need to express that. But I can be calm. Yeah. Right. And I'm an aggressive style parent, so I it's my dominant thing. So. I can be aggressive or I can go, I'm going to be calm here while you get upset. I am going to withdraw so that you can fill that space for a second. I'm not going to get defensive. I'm not going to fight you. It's not going to work. Like I have mm-hmm. 20 years with this child. It, it never worked. Were there times when her and I got in, you know, the good old fashioned, you know, parental fight and argument. Yep. It was not productive, not one time. (laughs) And I want my time with my kids to be productive. I want them to learn and grow and experience that. And so the more I can know myself and the energy I give off, the better I can gift them with this other perspective 
I can respond. If I know what's happening inside of me in any given moment, I can be in control of my energy towards what's happening outside of me. That's true with my kids. It's true with my, my wife. It's true at work. And yeah. that's where this tool of the Enneagram, it's what we're going to talk about a lot in the class, kind of what are some practical ways that we can do that. I've given you a few examples, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Even, even recognizing that if you have a toward energy child, I'm trying to give all three here now. If you have a toward energy child, you demonstrating that you're disappointed in them, it's like it breaks connection for them. Disappointment breaks connection for them. It is devastating to them. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we don't discipline them, but they are actually the children that we can say, I love you. What you did here, it doesn't have anything to do with how much I love you. But I need you to remember it so you don't do it again. So you're going to need a little bit of time. You're going to take a break. Do you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. What just happened in that, yeah. even in that, in those sentences, it's like reassuring that child that a connection hasn't been lost is so important to the to the toward energy stats because that's what they're after. They want a connection with their parent. They want their, a connection with everybody around them. Whether they know it or not, that's what's taking place inside of them unconsciously. So if we as parents suddenly send a message that it's that that isn't there, panic sets in. Yeah. Or yeah. That, and then you're yeah. not getting, you're not having a productive time with your child anymore. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're, I'm mostly mm-hmm. talking about this in the form of correction and discipline. You know, these are some of the examples I've given you today. But even if we start to think about what does my child need in terms of like a fun day? Yeah. You, yeah. Right? Like, um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, it, 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 it's important. Thank you for mentioning that because I think it's cool that we somehow, some way started through the pathway of discipline and whatnot because that raised the question of, well, what does discipline look like? How is it received? And how is it perceived as well? Yeah. And we see that there's various, I mean, you know, there is the whole realm of um, prevention. Mm-hmm. Before we start feeling like we're disciplining, there's a law that goes on, and that's exactly all these things that we're talking about. So I think it's okay that even right now we're still kind of like dancing around that topic to some degree because we're just talking about the various branches that comes as to how do we manage, how do we engage our children. And again, the, I, I'm really starting to understand what it is that you're doing as you speak because the whole idea of motivating our children, again, comes from so many ways, so many directions. Uh, one of the things that I picked up in uh, a book that I'm reading right now is um, they're exploring the question, why do children lie? Mm. And what they're saying is that children, especially at a young a younger age, they lie not um, e- e- if they, if you ask them why there's thought of why lying is wrong, does not come from a moral perspective because they don't understand morality. Mm-hmm. They don't understand morality. So if you're going to tell them a story or give them something that comes with like that touches based on morals, they're like, if you expect an answer that is moral based, they're not really going to give you that. What they fear, what, what, what they respond to instead is perhaps fear, fear of discipline, fear of punishment, fear of 
this or that, fear of mom or dad's reaction, that's what they're going to respond onto. And what they would find, for example, is children who come from my upbringing will go more out of their way to lie than children. And that's like that hard discipline style of whipping kids because the consequences are so great, they're going to like really, really like <laughs> go out of their way to lie. And like, they're that much more likely to lie and even tell bigger lies. But essentially, it's um, how we engage with our children. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's very important, very, very important, especially to get the outcome that we want, to get the message across, to teach them about morality, to teach them about, hey, this thing that you're doing is not just based on the punishment. It's not just, you should, like, there's more to it than that. Like, think about the other person. Think about these implications. You know, there's so many ways to take it around that. So, yeah, I just wanted to mention that mm-hmm. because, yeah, we are still dancing around that bush, but it's not bad. <laughs> yeah, you know, like, and I think that one of the things I would I would say is, like, re- recognizing the, like, I think I used this term earlier, like, when our kids practice lying on us, mm-hmm. like, they're, yeah, they're yeah, practicing. that up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of an interesting thing. And it's like, because, because sometimes lying works, mm-hmm. we get what we want or we get out of what we're afraid of or right. Like yeah. let's, let's be honest. Like we're all, you know, we're all grown ups here listening. Sometimes lying works. I am not suggesting it. I'm just saying <laughs> that we have, we have developed, each of us have developed strategies to survive. Mm-hmm. If we create an Absolutely. environment as parents where the only way for our child to survive, to give and receive love, to feel safe and accepted, is an environment where they need to lie or be something they are not in that environment. Well, who's responsible for that? Yeah. Now, and I'm not talking like I'm not talking about their special cases, they're there are humans, right? That are they're designed to deceive, they're, right? Like I'm not I'm not saying that. All kinds of neurological issues and different things that are kind of going on. But but our kids are practicing in our homes strategies for survival. What I want is my kids to be able to come into my home and practice important values so that they can go out in the world and survive. And that means staying true to who they are becoming and who I'm hoping that they will become and even who I am directing and guiding them towards becoming. So if I've created an environment where my kids are afraid to be themselves, afraid to, you know, they're going to explain gravity rather than saying I knocked the thing over then that might have something to do with some work that's going on for me. Now, I, if, for the parents who are listening, who are like, my kid lies regularly, that, and, and, I, they, and for those who just heard me say, well, that's your fault, that's not what I mean. And it certainly isn't too late. That's not what I'm talking about. But what I am talking about is, how, can, how are you as a parent being an environmentalist? How are you thinking about the environment that you are creating at home? What's going to be the best way for you as an adult? What's the best environment for you as an adult to tell the truth? Appropriately. And I will say, yeah, and I would add sometimes parents, as parents, as adults, we do need that hard message of 
you need to look in the mirror. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is very much needed. Well, and that's what that's where the Enneagram is a helpful tool. It's it's all the way back to that. At some point, you have to look at yourself in the mirror and recognize I am capable of some of the worst atrocities that the world has to offer. Now, we downgrade that mm-hmm. a little bit to hopefully the average parent that's out there, and you have to look in the mirror and say, I am actually capable of selfish parenting. I am actually capable of parenting out of my pride. I am actually responding out of a resentment to my child that I'm not getting to do what I want to do right now. Being able to name those things that are happening inside of us creates an environment where they get to name what's happening inside of them. If you can't do it, they will not learn to do it. Mm -hmm. Not not Mm -hmm. for a long time. And unfortunately, not until some major crisis happens in their life where they have to. Yeah. And so that's that's the kind of thing. Sometimes that's the case for us too. It is. It is, you know, like, unfortunately, like I'm a pain avoider as a seven, but I also tell you logically, I know that pain is my greatest teacher, that actually it's the pain spots in my life and my story that have gotten my attention enough to change my behavior and uh, enough to name some of the broken messiness that's kind of going on inside of me. That's me as a person, me as a parent, you know, this is where humans and so be, being able to be compassionate, I know we need to wrap up here, being able to demonstrate compassion for yourself has a direct implication on your ability to show compassion for your child. Now, yeah. If you can't be compassionate yeah. towards yourself, the chances of you being overly compassionate towards your children in, a, in an authentic way, it's, it's less. Yeah. It's not as good a chance. <laughs> No, no, if you can't see, if you can't see it for yourself, how are you going to see it for others? Yeah, you you can't give away what you don't have. Yeah, and that that includes your own home. So I I think that that's one of those kind of things. And 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 compassion is a compassion is something that is practiced. It's not just something you have. We practice compassion. We Mm -hmm. practice empathy. Just like we practice patience and we and we we even practice what we what we do with the energy that anger provides. Anger's not bad. It's energy. What we do with it can can cause harm. But but we can also get angry at a problem as long as you know and, and we can go after that problem. We can use that anger to really address a problem. Do, do you hear what I'm yeah. trying to say? Yeah. Um, shame, shame is a challenging one. And I think in parenting, we always need to talk about shame because shame, shame, shame and guilt are different. Guilt, Mm -hmm. guilt is, if you can explain, we, we, I, I definitely think there's a strong line between these things being different. Mm -hmm. Guilt, in my opinion, is something that we experience when we do something wrong. Um, and we all do that. Uh, shame is something that we experience when we think we are something wrong. So one is attached to your behavior and the other is attached to your identity. Oh, that is so powerful. Yeah. And 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 so when yeah. we shame, you know, our kids feeling guilty about, you know, doing something or even for us feeling guilty about doing something, it's it's just it's just information that that something we need to correct something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um when we experience shame, it it's almost as if our identity is in jeopardy. 
And the way I would like to describe it actually is almost like a, it's like a taste. Uh, when we shame somebody, it's like a disgust. Yeah. I would never look at my child and say, you, you're disgusting. You disgust me. So why would I say shame on you? Mm-hmm. Because you're saying the same thing. Yeah. But, yeah. but could we say, oh, your conscience is bothering you because that behavior, it's not who you are. So you've got a problem there happening. <laughs> Right, <laughs> you're uh, you're lying now because you feel guilty. I, I get it. You're trying to get out of it, but actually, it's not going to help you. Yeah, that's not going to help yeah. you in the long run. Telling the truth is the way to be free. Yeah, I grew up with a serious inferiority complex, mm. and it was very much attached to who I was. Mm-hmm. Right, and what I experienced was shame, shame for all of these different things that, up until I was older, I was still trying to fight to prove to myself, to prove to others, to prove to um, you know, I went back and re-upgraded my whole high school before university. I referred to it as, you know, fighting my uh, high school bullies. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it was a very important thing for me to do, but it was just to overcome that sense of shame and inferiority complex that I grew up with. And where that came from is a whole different story uh, in it for quite some time here. But yeah, I very much understand what you mean when you say that the shame element is tied to our identity Mm -hmm. and to dissociate ourselves from that sometimes means, you know, to give a practical example, it it can mean like saying that I'm not a, this is not me. These are just the circumstances that I grew up under, right? But they have nothing to do with really who I am as an individual, you know? And it kind of like brings me back into the whole idea of defining who is Lando. And yeah, like I do not think we should define who we are based on what we do per se. We can give that as reference points to say like, well, I'm in this profession. I, you know, these are, I'm an introvert or blah, blah, blah. But I think we, it's beyond a reference point is far more accurate based on our conversation at least to ourselves. It's far more accurate to describe who we are based on who we are in our worst days. And that's why I say to ourselves. Because that is not something that I, I'm fully willing to say who I am on my best day. I'll share that on the microphone all day, right? <laughs> but if you ask me who I really, really am on my worst day, that's what my family see when the doors are closed. Why? Because, I mean, we heard the people who are close to us the most. We were ourselves with the people who are close to us the most. When we close the door in the house, you know, that's, we're comfortable, we you know, all the guardrails comes out and we're just us. And so it's like, well, who are you at that particular point? And that's where you start looking at these things and you can really start doing some self-work there because you start to identify the real things that are really, really hard to change, the real things that have much stronger impact. Again, people will remember the negative more than the positive, right? And so it's like who you are on your worst day, you identify those things and you work on those things now on your better day, man, you may be a saint. Who knows, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think that's that's just it, right? It's like we're simultaneously both. Yeah, I, I tell people when I talk about growth, I'm like, look, when we choose to grow, to go into a period or a season of growth in our life, and that's the, primarily the people I'm working with. Mm-hmm. You can have you you are both the things that you are learning uh, to implement in your life, all those good new things. You are both that and 
you also have your old self that's a part of that same day, same week, month, years. So, so it's like in a season of growth, you are both the best of who you're becoming and the worst of who you were at the same time. So mm-hmm. what we needed to, and this is coach's language, is like we have to celebrate when we see the best of who we're becoming show up. When that Evan shows up, when that Lendo shows up, we have to go, you know what? I just won. I won there. That was a win. Maybe the outcome of what happened wasn't a win, but me handling myself in a new way, that's a win. I listened to my kid before I reacted. I I created some space. I took a breath, whatever it is, right? But then also there's going to be other moments when we have to go, okay, my old self just showed up, right? I just, Lando just, he rolled in here, old days, loaded with fear, loaded with whatever, shame, identity issues, all that stuff just came right into this story just now. And there it is. And I often make a joke about it. I'm I'm often, I'll just be like, oh, hey, you know, there you are, old Evan. You know, I see you. Mm -hmm. I noticed that you are here and I just, you know, you've, you've shown yourself, but now I'm going to invite you to to sit down and to be quiet because this isn't who I'm intending to become. So we name it. We name these things. The only way to grow and and to experience any sort of change is to, or to solve any problem is to recognize that there is one to name it. If you got an anger issue, then name your anger issue. It's 80% of the challenge is knowing that it's there. If you've got resentment built up, name the resentment. Even for now, if it's just like, oh, that's resentment showing up. If it's fear, if you're parenting out of fear, then name, oh, I have so much fear right now. Why, what's that about? You know, so much parenting, mm-hmm. com- fear-based parenting is destructive. I know, I, I used it. I've used it. I've used that technique. Mm-hmm. I know what I'm talking about, right? So it's like, being able to kind of identify some of these things can be really, really important. There's my son phoning right now. <laughs> Anyways, I need to wrap it up here. Yeah. So I got to hit out, but, but I, I really do hope that I don't know when you're releasing this, but I do a lot of coaching for people who are in seasons of transition, seasons of growth. And, and it's really my passion to, to see people grow and experience transformation. Mm-hmm. This class that I'm, I'm getting ready to teach uh, here at the end of the month on, on January 29th. Um, I'd love to have anybody who would like to come along and, and learn a little bit more about themselves and a little bit more about what I've been talking about today. It'd be, it would be a, a real gift. And mm-hmm. yeah, um, mm-hmm. um, that evening I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make it so affordable that people really only have an excuse to make the only excuse they have is that they're too busy. And, um, even then it's, I'm going to try to keep it at about an hour and a half. It's twenty five dollars, mm-hmm. and uh, you, you just you just need a Zoom link. You can just jump in on the Zoom call and, and join me. And my hope is it'll be yeah. practical and it'll help help us to grow as parents. Help me to grow as a parent. Well, you know, we've gone full circle with a lot of things that we brought up in this conversation, and that to me is always something that I look for. You know, because it's um, closure to what we brought up, right? And so um, for any of our listeners out there who appreciate this and enjoy this, you know, 
where like my my interest with this is just the element of knowing yourself and where does it begin and how do we go about that because know thyself has always been like this super you know tacky thing to say that people don't like we can actually peel it and there's really something there right we are our worst enemy we are we we we, we can only change what we're in control of all these type of adages come and c- c- come from this element of self-awareness and mm-hmm. that's what this is about so to me if i can make people more aware of whatever tool is out there that can um that they can use um to better themselves to know a little bit about themselves maybe with a mixture of other tools uh, that are at their disposition it is better than nothing it is better than sitting there in a void of like okay well where am I? Who am I? What do I do? Why am I doing this? Or not even being able to understand that you need to be raising those questions, right? So I think that's where these this type of stuff is important for people to be aware of and whatever they do with it, however they apply it, you know, that is entirely up to them, but at least the tools were there. And I kind of like the article, I sent you this article this morning that I was reading, and I don't know if you had a chance to really to go over it, but it was an article that dealt with like the challenges, common challenges that parents are facing. And initially I was looking in the United States, but I was like, okay, hey, well, what about Canada? And it seems as though uh, just generally what you're finding is there's like prenatal, postnatal courses. There is a lot of information out there. 90% of them, even in that article, they say p- pertain to like part- primarily women, uh, fa- mothers more than fathers. And it seems as though, and they point out in there even how uh, that is despite the fact that most people plan to parent together, but the information only pertains to one side for the most part. And it has been for a long time, although that is changing. But what you what, what they also outline in there is that behind the technical stuff, like changing diapers, this and that, all that information they give, is just how to parents. That information people don't know because, again, we have like a generational gap for a lot of people where they didn't get that modeling transition and transcend and pass on to be passed on to them. And so I find that these type of conversations help with that because we're talking about parenting from an experiential standpoint and from, you know, this lengthy journey, a transformative journey and, you know, like taking what we learn from our parent and figuring out what we let go from that and what we carry on with. Um, like these that's why these conversations are so important. And what you're outlining there of you know, knowing ourselves leads to us being able to help our children carve their own sense of identity, especially during the teenage year when it becomes crucial. I, I mean, that that's very important, right? Now, whatever tools tools that we use throughout our lives to get there, we can pass that on too. Mm-hmm. Because now we know what works, we know what doesn't work, we can guide them in different ways. And that's where all of this stuff becomes really, really important, I believe. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of like add that there whereas we're, as we're wrapping things up and I'll leave you with the last word here if you want to you know a shameless plug uh, <laughs> let us know what's coming for you and uh, where people can find more of your work okay and uh, we'll yeah yeah absolutely go ahead I'll give my shameless plug uh, love for you to listen to our <laughs> podcast at Unpacked Pod we talk about all sorts of growth and development and mental health things even parenting things so we have lots of episodes on some of those kinds of things you can find me at Recess Creek on Instagram, at Recess Creek. The Unpacked Podcast on the website, all my coaching stuff is at unpackedpod.ca. 
and I'm doing a parenting, you know, webinar, I guess we can call it on January 29th. And I don't know when this is getting released. Um, I'd love for you to join me or sign up for some individual coaching where we can just talk about what it looks like to grow. This would be my last statement, I would say. If you commit to being a person who is growing and is paying attention to what's happening inside of you, all of the parenting books in the world that you read will contribute the skills that you need to apply who you are to who you are hoping your children and your family will be. But it starts with you. So be brave and look at yourself and your children will learn to do the same. You will have healthy children. So I'll end with that. Model, model growth. Don't just teach growth. Mm -hmm. Model Model growth. Yeah. (laughs) I love that. I love that. That'll be the quotable. That was great. Yeah.